beyond the past. Hello, and welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. My name is Cody Sullivan, and thank you for being with us. If this is your first time listening, you'll be interested to know that the format of this show is segmented. Each section lasts between 10 to 30 minutes, and the only constraint is that it must contain the themes that this show is based upon. Those themes are horror, science fiction, magic, occult, true crime, and anything else that falls into the category of the bizarre and unknown. As always, our mission here at Pulp is to provide quality content for your express entertainment purposes. Picture this. You're lying in bed during a night of heavy rainfall when you hear someone knock on your door. Your heart begins to race at the unexpected sound. How you wish to stay in bed, but a knocking door has to be answered, doesn't it? Knocking at the door is our first segment, a story about an ill-fated couple who probably wish they stayed in bed. The Vile Goblet by Cody Sullivan, 2015. If I had known the truth about the goblet, I never would have shown it to her. I was 22 years old, having just graduated from university, and I was living in London in a small room on the second floor of a retired end, the rusted nail. The year was 1909. I had been living in the room only a few weeks. Elizabeth and I had moved in together after my recent marriage proposal. I met her shortly after I arrived to England from Massachusetts. It was a small room, modestly furnished, old wooden chairs and a small wooden table, bent by time and worn by use, were set upon an oriental rug facing a small hearth, which reeked of ash and burnt wood. Our landlord, Mr. Joseph Puckney, lived just down the cobbled street in his less than modest manner. He was a portly man of short stature, with a thin mustache and rosy cheeks. His receding hairline gave way to a shiny bald spot on his head that he sometimes covered with a dark green bowler hat. He often visited us to check on the room and make sure we had no issues with it. We never did. I loved my fiancé very much. Apart from her beauty, she was the absolute center of every occasion. She was witty and clever and had a way of commanding an audience so that they couldn't help but be drawn into her conversation. Gregarious as she was, few knew the truth about her. She was, in fact, a fairly fractured mind. There was much that she hid, even from me, and try as I might, there were some thoughts she kept hidden from all. She would often fall silent in crowded places, staring with big blue eyes out the nearest window, seemingly lost in thought. I often wondered what she was thinking about. At first I worried this behavior was a sign of her losing interest and becoming weary of me and my friends. I asked her about it once, to which she replied, I'm fine, darling. Just dreaming. That's all. You're sure you're all right? Positively. I digress. Back to the goblet. One evening, Elizabeth and I had tucked in for bed earlier than usual. There was a terrible rainstorm that shook the window shutters, causing them to slam and bang into the siding of the retired inn. The rain was falling sideways, being blown by heavy gusts of wind. Rain was falling so fast, pounding against the window panes, that what started as a pitter-patter 
quickly changed into a single rushing sound louder than the small fire that crackled noisily in the hearth. It was shortly after 9.30 in the evening and the world was dark as the light of the full moon failed to penetrate the dense rain clouds that blanketed London. Suddenly, there was the sound of a knock at the front door, or what used to be the front entrance to the rusted nail. Elizabeth sat straight up in bed and shook my arm. Did you hear that? Daniel! I had heard it, but I said nothing. She was listening for the knock again, straining her ears against the sound of the rain. This time, there were three knocks, each louder than before. Daniel, wake up. There must be someone out there. There's a man out there. Goodness, he's soaked, and with no brolly either. With a sigh, I pulled off the covers and placed my feet on the cold wood floor. Looking out the window through the droplets of rain, I could barely make out a tall, slim man in a black coat. Other than the rhythmic knocking, he was standing completely still. It couldn't be Mr. Puckney, for as if the dissimilar shape of the man wasn't enough, I knew that he had gone to Ireland this week to visit family. I had no way of knowing who this man was, but I had a feeling that it wasn't a friend of ours. All of our friends knew of the inside entrance leading directly up to our room. As I walked down the dusty steps that led to the retired bar room, with Elizabeth standing at the top of the stairs behind me, I felt the most terrible sense of dread standing behind that door. One last threefold knock as I reached the door caused me such a fright that I recoiled and hesitated before lifting the hatch on the old wooden portal. I'm terribly sorry, sir, but this inn has been shut for years. There's a pub three streets down that way if you're looking to get out of the rain. The man standing before me seemed even taller now than before. I could see that what I had thought was a black coat was in fact a billowy cloak. I also noticed that his hands were withdrawn inside the cloak so that I could not see them. He stared at me for a moment and I returned the look. I did not recognize this person. Of that I was sure. He wore a tall hat and his eyes were dark and wild looking. And yet he wore his beard trimmed very prim and immaculate. And the tips of his dark mustache were waxed and curled. Surely a face I would remember. Finally, he spoke. Come along, Daniel. I'll only be staying a moment. I'm a more busy man than you'd care to know. With that, he brushed right past me and walked straight to the bar, gracefully avoiding the chairs and other junk strewn about the room. I heard him place something metal on the bar, and it sounded heavy. I'm sorry, sir, but uh, I'm not sure you should be here. I don't believe we've met. How did you know my name? No, we've never met. But I know you, Daniel. I have to say, as far as introductions go, this one's a bit more dull than most I have. I see. It appears you have me at a disadvantage then. Who are you? I have many names. Some you know, and more that have been forgotten in time. Some that are better than others. For now, you may address me as Ferical. But know that I do not have time to make pleasantries. Elizabeth, I've left it here for you. You only need to follow the instructions on the side. With that, the slim man turned away from me and glided to the door. 
I followed him as best I could, but in the darkness, I kept knocking into things littered about. Hold up! Wait a moment! How do you know my fiancé? What is it you've left for her, and why, sir? It's not for you, young man. But in time, I hope I can be of assistance to you as well. One last thing. I'd advise Elizabeth to ask about her parents. They may want to stay home this Sunday Mass. Until next time. He was gone as soon as he came. Confused and not without the sense of dread I felt before, I approached the object resting on the bar. My eyes now adjusted more to the darkness. I could see it was a chalice, a small goblet of fine silver. As I picked it up, I noticed its weight and carried it to bring upstairs. Elizabeth was at the top of the stairs, her hand firmly clasped over her mouth, and her eyes were wide, wide in silent terror. That night, Elizabeth refused to explain herself, and how our late-night visitor knew her, and more importantly, what the meaning was behind such a fine gift being left in her name. Over the next couple of days, I was able to prod her for more information. It took some time for her terror to subside. She told me that earlier that day, she had wandered into a queer curio shop, one with a large placard that read, Psychic Reading and Magical Fortunes. It was there she had paid a small sum to have her fortune told by the old woman who specialized in divination. The woman was unable to see what exactly fate had in store for Elizabeth, but for a larger fee, the woman could perform a seance of sorts to try and contact the spirit realm for a better answer. The events that followed were unsettling to say the least, especially considering the events that happened that evening. A short while after the seance began, the woman fell completely still. Her eyes began to flutter and roll back into her head, and only the whites of her eyes were showing. When at last she spoke, the voice was strikingly different. Firstly, tell me your name. Lastly, speak to me your desire. My name? My name is Elizabeth. I desire to know my future. Only your future? No. I desire to know the future of whatever I please to think on. It will be done. That was it. The woman opened her eyes and declared it would be done, but not before warning me that those that get what they seek often get more than they bargain for. I was going to tell you. But money has been tight, and I didn't want you to think me a fool for believing in such superstitious nonsense. Upon inspection, the goblet itself was very small and shallow, but with a wide mouth. In bas-relief along its sides was a morbid picture of a man with a small knife. He appeared to have cut his wrist and was collecting the stream of blood into the mouth of a small goblet. The unknown man had said that the instructions to this tool of divination would be along the side, and though the thought of filling the basin with the blood made me nauseous, I couldn't stop Elizabeth's terror turned to curiosity when she came home with a new set of brass bloodletting knives from the barber down the street. She had taken the goblet to the same curio shop as before, and the psychic knew at once what the object was. She said that it was called the Vile Goblet, and it indeed had the power of clairvoyance and premonition, 
but that it should almost never be used except in the most dire of situations. It was a Saturday afternoon when Elizabeth first used the goblet. The man, Farrakhal, had told her to ask the goblet about her parents before Sunday Mass. It sickened me to watch her so resolutely bleed herself into the cup, but there was no stopping her. I sat beside her until the cup was full and helped stop the bleeding by keeping a bandage pressed in her wrist as she peered into the crimson pool. Tell me, vile goblet, what does fate have in store for my parents? Heavens, no! Daniel, do you see that? It's their church. I'm sure of it. And... It's smoking? It's on fire! When I peered into the sanguine pool, I saw only my concerned face looking back at me, reflecting from the still surface of blood. That evening, we rushed to warn her parents of the coming tragedy. Elizabeth begged and pleaded them not to go, and though she was hysteric, they assured her that they would worship at home in the morning. I can be honest in saying that my heart sank into my stomach the next morning as Elizabeth and I watched the purple column of smoke rising from the distant church from one of the windows in our room. It had been right, and that only made her thirst for hidden knowledge greater, for after that she began compiling a list of questions to ask. Would we have children? Would we ever leave London? These were the harmless questions. But I had glanced at her writings once to see she had written and crossed out such questions as, How long would Daniel live for? When will I die? Would we see that mysterious stranger again? Which brings me to tonight, one week after the vile goblet had arrived and taken our lives. After the first use, Elizabeth became frantic in her desire to inquire. The Sunday that the church burned, she bled herself again. I reluctantly agreed to help, for I could tell that she was more interested in filling the basin than stopping her bleeding. And though I personally detested the sight of blood, I was willing to be her nurse. At first, at least. She asked about her sister, and whether she would be married within a year. Though this may seem trivial, her sister was older and lived alone. There were unspoken fears that she'd never marry at all. Tears of joy streamed down her face as she stared into the goblet. I can see their ceremony, Daniel. Mother and father are crying. Look at that groom! Can you see him, Daniel? Can you see him? He's very handsome. I wonder when they'll meet. She became very faint after that incident and fell into a deep sleep. I was upset at how she looked. Apart from the frantic smiling she donned upon her face, I could see her rosy cheeks lose their luster in the dim lamplight. After that night, I refused to assist her. Not because I didn't want her to be safe. I just thought it might stop her for a few days and give her a chance to recover. It is now all too apparent I was wrong. Earlier this morning, I was awakened by her shouting. I sat up in bed to see what was the matter. It's not working. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Darling, please stop that. What's wrong? Here, let me stop the bleeding. It's not showing me anything. Nothing at all. Not even my reflection, Daniel. I'm afraid I must not have asked the question properly. What question? Oh, Daniel. I just wanted to know where we'd be a year from now. I just want to know what will become of us. But the phrasing must be off. Or perhaps I'm not filling it enough. My love, please stop this. I'm so worried about you. Can you just stop for a couple of weeks? We can go away and forget about this whole sordid affair. 
Yes. Yes, dear, yes. You're probably right. I just think it's rather curious that you should stop working. Perhaps I should rest. Thank you. A couple of hours later, she said she was going out for some air. Said that the cool wind in her face might invigorate her, and that she wanted to go alone. I, myself, headed to work where I spent the day deep in thought about my love and the goblet. I could not shake the same sense of dread I had felt when that mystery man knocked loudly at our door. So, by that time, I had gotten out and headed home under a darkened sky lit by gaslight. I clipped along at a hurried pace. When I arrived home, I found the side entrance to our room locked. Elizabeth wasn't home yet, it seemed. My skin began crawling with goosebumps as I turned on the lamps and tried to start a fire. Suddenly, I heard a crash from the bar room downstairs. I nearly bolted out of my skin at the abrupt noise. I listened for a moment, and I heard nothing. Not a sound at all. I unlatched the door and stood at the top of the stairs, peering down into the obscuring darkness of the retired bar. But I noticed a faint glow coming from beyond the edge of my sight. Slowly, tentatively, I moved down the stairs as silently as I could. What I saw... God... What I saw, there was a makeshift altar at the end of the bar, glowing adorned with burning candles, and smeared in blood was the name Ferrical all over the ground and the walls around the altar. And on the altar itself, there were the letters of that cursed name jumbled about. And in the very center, underneath the vile goblet, which had runneth over with blood, was the devil's name himself, Lucifer. I hardly recognized the figure sprawled across the floor as my doomed fiancé. It was Elizabeth. Tufts of hair strewn about, so much that her scalp was showing in bloody patches. She was wearing a red-stained nightgown, and she was lying in a pool of blood, blackened by the candlelight. I rushed to her side and knelt down in a deep pool of sticky blood. No, no, no. Please, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, wake up! I'm so sorry, Daniel. I should never have contacted him. I've doomed us both. I, th I think I understand what the goblet meant by not showing me a premonition of our future. We have no future, Daniel. <laughs> We're meant to die. I love you so much, and I hope you can forgive me. Don't go, Elizabeth. Don't leave me. I love you so much. She was gone. I could tell from her blank stare how cold to the touch she was, and honestly, how much blood she'd lost. I knelt there sobbing for a moment, holding her cold corpse in my arms. After some time of thinking dreadful thoughts, I wondered how I could go on living without her. Or if I, too... I'm truly meant to join her in the grave, as she had said. I had thought to use the goblet myself, when suddenly I heard a familiar voice. I turned around to see the man, Ferrical, or Lucifer, holding the goblet, which was filled to the brim with cold blood, up to his lips. <laughs> I told you, Daniel, this is not meant for you. She was right, however. 
You are meant to die here by her side. I think that is a more romantic end than most couples have. <laughs> Don't you? I watched him as he slowly drank the blood of my dead Elizabeth. Watched the streaks of red cascade down the corners of his mouth. And when he was done, he produced a silk kerchief to dab away the liquid. Not that it should matter much, but upon finding your bodies, it will be assumed that you sacrificed your beloved to me before taking your life. It's funny how humans believe that it is my life's work to drive people mad, to make them kill themselves and one another. Oh, but how much more honest it is to say that it is your kind's own morbid curiosity that drives you mad. It is the engine that built your civilization, and it is the same device that burnt Rome, destroyed Babel, and in the end, damns you all to me. I will say that though I never force this punishment on humankind, I do take from it a very deep satisfaction. Oh, now I must go. We'll see each other again, I think. May your death bring you some small measure of peace. Goodbye, Daniel. He stepped back into the shadows from whence he came, taking the vile goblet with him, and though I couldn't peer into that darkness, I knew he was gone. Is it true what he said? Would this macabre discovery be pinned on me? Would my good name go down as one of the hidden Satanists that prowled the London streets? If I had wished to stay alive to tell what had happened, I had no proof. I would surely be hanged and my reputation tarnished still. So that's why I'm writing this here, now, in the candlelight beside the body of my love. I feel tired from the exhaustion of recounting these painful memories, as well as the steady droplets of my own blood streaming out of my left wrist onto the floor, in mixing with Elizabeth's. I don't know what fate has in store for me on the other side, but I can only hope that she'll be there. You must know I loved her dearly and would never dream of harming her. If I had known the truth about the goblet, I never would have shown it to her. Art is one of the oldest practices in recorded human history, and it could be argued that no form is older than that of music. 
Since our earliest ancestors were playing crude instruments, chanting and dancing around the fire, music has always been our companion and means of expression. So naturally, the different genres that have existed, or ever will exist, are as distinctly different from one another as we are. Yet, that which appears at first to be unique and opposing becomes more and more alike to each other under further scrutiny. Should Beethoven have had the chance to listen to Ingvi Malmsteen's classical metal piece Arpeggios from Hell, I dare say he would have picked up on the similarities right away. Which brings us to our next segment, a very special musical edition of Alone on the Couch. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, ghosts, ghouls, and dare I say, goblins? I do dare, I dare indeed, as I give you my thoughts and opinions on the latest album by Necrogoblicon, aptly named Welcome to Bonkers, on this installment of Alone on the Couch. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Necrogoblicon, they are a melodic, symphonic, and joyfully neurotic death metal band. The topics they discuss in their music range from the dangers of bears to dead giraffes floating through the emptiness of space full-body explosions, and magic spiders. Oh yeah, and goblins. Lots of goblins. So Welcome to Bonkers is the band's fourth studio album, and I gotta be honest, I think it's the band's tightest, most musically complex work yet, uh, while it retains its sense of tongue-in-cheek silliness and self-awareness. Yeah, you're in for some real tasty treats in Welcome to Bonkers, so go ahead, get that straitjacket tightened a bit, and we're gonna go ahead and just dive right in. The album wastes no time assaulting you with the opening track, Mold, with heavy, dirty guitar riffing, Nicky Scorpion Cologne's barking vocals, drums blasting your soul out of your weak body, coupled with synth and electronic elements and a cleanly sung chorus, it's a delightful opening anthem and introduces you to this fever dream of an album you are about to give up your mind and body to. Mold is followed up by the many faces of Dr. Hubert Malbeck and Row, which I consider the heaviest and most intense offerings of the album, but that's just me. Dr. Hubert Malbeck presents the question I know we all silently contemplate within our own mind selves, and that's how long can we keep on our masks of sanity in this world before our heads f***ing explode. Literally explode. It's a wonderful piece if you're looking to thrash around violently a bit, and who isn't, honestly. Couple more notches on that straitjacket, please. Thank you. If you or someone you know has been affected by their f***ing head exploding, you may be entitled to goblin compensation. Goblin compensation may not meet your standards or help in any way whatsoever and possibly just make things worse. Okay, Dressed as Goblins. It's the second single they released off Welcome to Bonkers. It's accompanied by a music video directed by Brendan Small. And if you don't know who Brendan Small is, just turn this off, please. This is not for you. Alright, anyone left listening? No? Great. Next we have the songs Dragons and Darkness. And if you've been searching for the tunes you will play as you dance on the graves of your enemies and all of your broken dreams, look no further. Dragons will send you back to the days of playing your old NES. You know, those games with the sickest soundtracks? Yeah, it's like that. 
Darkness also has that same kind of groove to it, and it will certainly remind you of how you felt back then, because you were the only kid who couldn't afford the newest gadgets and game systems, and were never invited to the kids' houses that had those cool toys. Make sure you crank these up and dance extra hard on those graves. Thanks for nothing, Moon. This song is one of my favorites of the album, simply for the fact that we are finally talking about how useless the moon is. I mean, really, what, what does the moon do, other than shed some light on our abysmal lives in the dead of night, only to laugh at us from above? F*** you, moon. Alright guys, we are gonna get a cook in here with the first single they released off the album, called The Skin Thief. This song, I think, is the one that sticks to the band's tried and true style uh, the most off the album. You got your blast beats galore, you got your heavy shredding guitar runs, those nice guttural blood-soaked vocals, and a delightful story of when it's cold outside and your mom says no when you ask her for a coat, you just, you gotta just take matters into your own hands and start making them from skin. Common subject matter, but once again, these guys do a great job at keeping it fresh and keeping it relatable. Um, is this the tightest a straight jacket gets? It is? Thank you. I know by now most of you are probably questioning your entire existence, and if you're not, you should be. Fret not, however, for Necrogoblicon is here for you. The Magic Spider. <laughs> this song. This is, this is the song. This song caught me completely off guard. It's a lovely piano-focused and cleanly sung piece that is just, it's so much fun, you just, you can't not love it. Think of a children's show opening song, but your dose of bath salt is starting to kick in. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful pairing. If you wish upon a spider, all your dreams will all come true. This is followed up by Killing Time and Space, which begins just as you would expect at this point, with some rock and twing and twang and banjo, flanked by accordion throughout the entire song. Uh, these guys incorporate elements as far from death metal as it gets, and they do it flawlessly while keeping the overall feeling of pain and despair pure and tight. Simply lovely. Mm -mwah. Mm -mwah. And alright, everybody, here we are. We have now reached the end of the album with the final track, Goblins. It's the band's 80s-style power ballad to show us out. Necrogoblicon laments that they've been spending too much time with goblins. But after much reflection, it seems that goblins are all there are in these times of need. But you know what? That's just fine. They still believe in themselves, and they still believe in goblins. And it's a perfect farewell to this world of bonkers, and it would leave Satan with a single bloody tear rolling down his skull skin. Alright folks, well, that is it. I hope you've enjoyed your time this evening with me, alone, on this couch. And I leave you with my overall rating of this album. I give Welcome to Bonkers 666 goblins out of 10 moons. Or a 9 out of 10 for those of you that are bad with conversions. Now go get down with your goblin self. Time is ticking away, bringing us ever closer to the inevitable end of the program. Time is also a relevant segue into the next part of our show. Did you know that the first commercial to be aired on television was in 1941? The Brooklyn Dodgers were set to play against the Philadelphia Phillies, and before the first pitch was thrown, 
What we would recognize as a short television commercial aired in thousands of living rooms across America. The commercial? A short and simple spot for the Belova Watch Company. And now, a word from our sponsor. Susan, tell me you've been practicing your flute lessons. You've hardly used that thing since I bought it for you. I'm sorry, John. It's just that the flute is so boring. I wish it was more exciting and attention-grabbing. Does this sound familiar to you? Have you or someone you love recently been gifted a flute? Or worse, are you currently considering purchasing a flute for someone you know? Then I've got good news for you. You may be entitled to a select beta test for the brand new Cthulhu from Miskatonic Audio Labs. Unlike a traditional flute, the Cthulhu comes with tentacles on the end that flutter when you blow. Also, there are eyes on the side of it. Traditional flute instruments can sound like this. But the Cthulhu has them beat because it sounds like this. I repeat, if you or a loved one have a flute or are considering purchasing a flute, you may be entitled to a select beta test of the Cthulhu from Miskatonic Audio Labs. But wait, because there's more. Preferred qualifiers may be chosen to alpha test the Scarinet, free of charge. When you blow into the Scarinet, it sounds like this. I'm coming for you, and I will be there soon. Please call us today at 4732-865-3663. That's 4732-565-3663. That's 4732-565-3663. That's 4732-565-3663. Call us today and stop letting you or your loved ones play the flute. Miskatonic Audio Lab. Now it's time to join us for our final segment on the program, Killer Serials, where we will continue the tribulations of Gregor Samsa in Franz Kafka's masterwork, The Metamorphosis. If you missed out on our previous episode, it is recommended that you go back and listen to part one of this tale. When we last left Gregor Samsa, he had awoken in bed to find that, through some inexplicable circumstance, that he had been changed into a giant bug. The difficulty presented in operating this new body made him nearly unable to get out of bed, despite the concern and questioning of his family behind locked doors of his room. He was late for work, which he never is, and despite his clean attendance record, his job has sent his manager to his home to inquire why he missed the early train. If only Gregor could unlock the door, there was a chance he could still make it to work on the later train. He had landed out of bed with a thud that was heard by all in the next room. This is where we begin. Killer Serials The Metamorphosis Franz Kafka Part 2 
Gregor tried to imagine to himself whether anything similar to what was happening to him today could have also happened at some point to the manager. At least one had to concede the possibility of such a thing. However, as if to give a rough answer to this question, the manager now took a few determined steps in the next room with a squeak of his polished boots. From the neighboring room on the right, the sister was whispering to inform Gregor. Gregor, the manager is here. I know, said Gregor to himself. But he did not dare make his voice loud enough so that his sister could hear. Gregor, his father said now from the neighboring room on the left, Mr. Manager has come and is asking why you have not left on the early train. We don't know what we should tell him. Besides, he also wants to speak to you personally, so please open the door. He will be good enough to forgive the mess in your room. In the middle of all this, the manager called out in a friendly way, "'Good morning, Mr. Samsa.' "'He is not well,' said his mother to the manager, while his father was still talking at the door. "'He is not well, believe me, Mr. Manager. Otherwise, how would Gregor miss a train? The young man has nothing in his head except business.' I'm almost angry that he never goes out at night. Right now he's been in the city eight days, but he's been at home every evening. He sits there with us at the table and reads the newspaper quietly or studies his travel schedules. It's quite a diversion for him if he busies himself with fretwork. For instance, he cut out a small frame over the course of two or three evenings, You'd be amazed how pretty it is. It's hanging right inside the room. You'll see it immediately, as soon as Gregor opens the door. Anyway, I'm happy that you're here, Mr. Manager. By ourselves, we would never have made Gregor open the door. He's so stubborn, and he's certainly not well, although we denied that this morning. I'm coming... Right. Away. Said Gregor slowly and deliberately, and didn't move, so as not to lose one word of the conversation. My dear lady, I cannot explain it to myself in any other way, said the manager. I hope it's nothing serious. On the other hand, I must also say that we business people, luckily or unluckily, however one looks at it, very often simply have to overcome a slight indisposition for business reasons. So, can Mr. Manager come in and see you now? asked his father impatiently and knocked once again on the door. No, said Gregor. In the neighboring room on the left, a painful stillness descended. In the neighboring room on the right, the sister began to sob. Why didn't his sister go to the others? She'd probably just gotten up out of bed now and hadn't even started to get dressed yet. Then why was she crying? Because he wasn't getting up? 
and wasn't letting the manager in? Because he was in danger of losing his position, and because then his boss would badger his parents once again with the old demands? Those were probably unnecessary worries right now. Gregor was still here and wasn't thinking at all about abandoning his family. At the moment, he was lying right there on the carpet, and no one who knew about his condition would have seriously demanded that he let the manager in. But Gregor wouldn't be casually dismissed right way because of the small discourtesy, for which he would find an easy and suitable excuse later on. It seemed to Gregor that it might be far more reasonable to leave him in peace at the moment instead of disturbing him with crying and conversation. But it was the very uncertainty which distressed the others and excused their behavior. Mr. Samsa, the manager was now shouting, his voice raised. What's the matter? You are barricading yourself in your room? Answer with only a yes? And a no? Are you making serious and unnecessary troubles for your parents? And neglecting? I mention this only incidentally. Your commercial duties in a truly unheard of manner? I am speaking here in the name of your parents and your employer. And I am requesting you in all seriousness for an immediate and clear explanation. I am amazed. I am amazed. I thought I knew you as a calm, reasonable person, and now you appear suddenly to want to start parading around in weird moods. The chief indicated to me earlier this very day a possible explanation for your neglect. It concerned the collection of cash entrusted to you a short while ago. But, in truth... I almost gave him my word of honor that this explanation could not be correct. However, now I see here in your unimaginable pig-headedness, and I am totally losing any desire to speak up for you in the slightest. And your position is not at all the most secure. Originally, I intended to mention all this to you privately, but since you are letting me waste my time here uselessly, I don't know why the matter shouldn't come to the attention of your parents. Your productivity has also been very unsatisfactory recently. Of course, it's not the time of year to conduct exceptional business, we recognize that, but a time of year for conducting no business? There is no such thing at all, Mr. Samsa, and such a thing must never be. But, Mr. Manager, called Gregor, beside himself and in his agitation forgetting everything else, I am opening the door immediately, this very moment. A slight indisposition, a dizzy spell has prevented me from getting up. I'm still lying in bed right now, but now I'm quite refreshed once again. I'm in the midst of getting out of bed. Just have patience, 
for a short moment. Things are not going so well as I thought. But things are all right. How suddenly this can overcome someone. Just yesterday evening, everything was fine with me. My parents certainly know that. Actually, just yesterday evening, I had a small premonition. People must have seen that in me. Why have I not reported that to the office? But people always think that they'll get over sickness without having to stay home, Mr. Manager. Take it easy on my parents. There is really no basis for the criticisms which you are now making against me. And really, nobody has said a word to me about that. Perhaps you have not read the latest orders which I shipped. Besides, now I'm setting out on my trip on the eight o'clock train. The few hours rest have made me stronger. Mr. Manager, do not stay. I will be at the office in person right away. Please have the goodness to say that and to convey my respects to the chief. While Gregor was quickly blurting all this out, hardly aware of what he was saying, he had moved close to the chest of drawers without effort, probably as a result of the practice he had already had in bed, and now he was trying to raise himself up on it. Actually, he wanted to open the door. He really wanted to let himself be seen by and to speak with the manager. He was keen to witness what the others now asking of him would say at the sight of him. If they were startled, then Gregor had no more responsibility and could be calm. But if they accepted everything quietly, then he would have no reason to get excited and, if he got a move on, could really be at the station around eight o'clock. At first he slid down a few times from the smooth chest of drawers, but at last he gave himself a final swing and stood upright there. He was no longer at all aware of the pains in his lower body, no matter how they might sting. Now he let himself fall against the back of a nearby chair, on the edge of which he braced himself with his thin limbs. By doing this, he gained control over himself and kept quiet, for he could now hear the manager. Did you understand a single word? The manager asked his parents, is he playing the fool with us? For God's sakes, cried the mother already in tears. Perhaps he's very ill and we're upsetting him. Greta, Greta, she yelled at that point. Mother! called the sister from the other side. They were making themselves understood through Gregor's room. You must go to the doctor right away. Gregor is sick. Hurry to the doctor. Have you heard Gregor speak yet? That was an animal's voice, said the manager, remarkably quiet in comparison to the mother's cries. Anna, 
Anna! <laughs> yelled the father through the hall into the kitchen, clapping his hands. Fetch a locksmith right away! The two young women were already running through the hall with swishing skirts. How had his sister dressed herself so quickly and yanked open the doors of the apartment? One couldn't hear the doors closing at all. They had probably left them open, as is customary in an apartment in which a huge misfortune has taken place. However, Gregor had become much calmer. All right. People did not understand his words anymore. Although they seemed clear enough to him, clearer than previously, perhaps because his ears had gotten used to them, but at least people now thought that things were not all right with him and were prepared to help him. The confidence and assurance with which the first arrangements had been carried out made him feel good. He felt himself included once again in the circle of humanity and was expecting from both the doctor and the locksmith without differentiating between them with any real precision splendid and surprising results in order to get as clear a voice as possible for the critical conversation which was imminent he coughed a little and certainly took the trouble to do this in a really subdued way since it was possible that even this noise sounded like something different from a human cough. He no longer trusted himself to decide any more. Meanwhile, in the next room it had become really quiet. Perhaps his parents were sitting with the manager at the table and were whispering. Perhaps they were all leaning against the door and listening. Gregor pushed himself slowly towards the door and with the help of the easy chair, let go of it there, threw himself against the door, held himself upright against it. The balls of his tiny limbs had a little sticky stuff on them, and rested there momentarily from his exertion. Then he made an effort to turn the key in the lock with his mouth, Unfortunately, it seemed that he had no real teeth. How, then, was he to grab hold of the key? But, to make up for that, his jaws were naturally very strong. With their help, he managed to get the key really moving, and he did not notice that he was obviously inflicting some damage on himself, for a brown fluid came out of his mouth, flowed over the key, and dripped onto the floor. Shh! Just listen for a moment, said the manager in the next room. He's turning the key. For Gregor, that was a great encouragement. But they all should have called out to him, including his father and mother. Come on, Gregor, they should have shouted. Keep going! Keep working on the lock! Imagining that all his efforts were being followed with suspense, he bit down frantically on the key with all the force he could muster, and the key turned more. He danced around the lock. Now he was holding himself upright only with his mouth, and he had to hang onto the key or then press it down again with the whole weight of his body as necessary. The quite distinct click of the lock as it finally snapped really woke Gregor up. 
Breathing heavily, he said to himself, So, I didn't need the locksmith. And he set his head against the door handle to completely open the door. Because he had to open the door in this way, it was already open very wide without him yet being really visible. He first had to turn himself slowly around the edge of the door, very carefully, of course, if he did not want to fall awkwardly onto his back right at the entrance into the room. He was still preoccupied with this difficult movement and had no time to pay attention to anything else when he heard the manager exclaim aloud, oh! It sounded like the wind whistling. And now he saw him, nearest the door, pressing his hand against his open mouth and moving slowly back, as if an invisible, constant force was pushing him away. His mother, in spite of the presence of the manager, she was standing here with her hair sticking up on end, still a mess from the night, with her hands clasped, was looking at his father. She then went two steps towards Gregor, and collapsed right in the middle of her skirts, spreading out all around her, her face sunk on her breast, completely concealed. His father clenched his fist with a hostile expression, as if he wished to push Gregor back into his room, then looked uncertainly around the living room, covered his eyes with his hands, and cried so that his mighty breast shook. At this point, Gregor did not take one step into the room, but leaned his body from the inside against the firmly bolted wing of the door, so that only half his body was visible, as well as his head tilted sideways, with which he peeped over at the others. Meanwhile, it had become much brighter. Standing out clearly from the other side of the street was a part of the endless gray-black house situated opposite. It was a hospital, with several irregular windows breaking up the facade. The rain was still coming down, but only in large individual drops visibly and firmly thrown down one by one onto the ground. The breakfast dishes were standing piled around on the table because, for his father, breakfast was the most important mealtime in the day, which he prolonged for hours by reading various newspapers. Directly across on the opposite wall hung a photograph of Gregor from his time spent in military service. It was a picture of him as a lieutenant, as he, smiling and worry-free, with his hand on his sword, demanded respect for his bearing and uniform. The door to the hall was ajar, and since the door to the apartment was also open, one saw out into the landing of the apartment and the start of the staircase going down. End part two. Well, folks, that's all for this episode. We at Pulp would like to thank you, the listeners, for your ongoing interest and support. To all our new contributors, thank you for your time. It is the goal of this show to include as many contributors as possible, 
ranging from music, stories, reviews, or even just lending your voice to a segment. It all helps this show come alive, so to speak. Special thanks to Dominic Vanka, Sara Liptrot, Dan Tui, and a very special thank you to artist Amanda Gay for creating our lovely logo. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can now follow us on Twitter at Pulp From Beyond and like our Facebook page for updates and news. We'd also love to hear from you via email at pulpfrombeyond at gmail.com. If you wish to contribute, have suggestions, or just want to say hello, we'd love to hear from you. I'm Cody Sullivan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>